Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Hello, and thank you for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. For those of us old enough or native to the Bay Area, you know, we've lived through some radical changes brought about by our region's ever-evolving economic engine starting in the Santa Clara Valley, from producing the majority of the world's fruits and nuts when it was the Valley of Heart's Delight, to the first technology boom, which brought computer and chip manufacturing to the world from the newly dubbed Silicon Valley, then to the dot-com boom and bust, and then internet social media boom again, each one bringing growth, new and fast money, separating economic classes, and different ways of working and making a living. From dawn to dusk farming, to rotating manufacturing shifts, to sometimes dawn to dawn startup type work, and now we're seeing the new sharing economy. Companies like Uber and Airbnb, those headquartered in San Francisco, not only changing the nature of employment and lifestyle, but they've also ushered in new million and billionaires wielding influence both socially, economically, and politically. Who are these people? How did they make it so big? How do they and their ideas end up having such incredible influence on our lives? We're going to ask all of those questions of Bloomberg Technology Editor Brad Stone, author of a new book called The Upstarts, how Uber, Airbnb, and the killer companies of the new Silicon Valley are changing the world. Brad Stone, thanks for joining us on In-Depth. I appreciate it. Uh, hi, Jane. Thank you. I loved how you just put that all in historic perspective. Well, I showed my age there, for one thing. But that tees it up for you to tell us about how you looked at these new uh, job-sharing companies and where they fit in the history of the region's economy and now the world. Right. So so the book, The Upstarts, is about it's primarily about two companies, Uber and Airbnb. And on the on the cover of the book is an image of a wave. And it's because these companies are riding, as as you as you as you properly said, uh, you know, these underlying trends. And twenty years ago it was it was the internet on dial up and then it was, you know, Wi Fi and this need to like establish our identities online and Facebook emerge. But you know, in two thousand and eight when both of these companies were founded, and actually both sets of founders were, were kicking around anonymously at the inauguration of Barack Obama, this is the beginning of the iPhone and the smartphone era. And these phones got better, wireless broadband, GPS, and so you know, we'll talk about these companies and the innovators behind them and, and the controversies that followed them. But by and large, they, they rode this wave, you know, a, a cycle of economic growth, uh, capital flooding into Silicon Valley, uh, everyone from venture capitalists to sovereign wealth funds wanting to get in on the action. And then this underlying shift of, of connectivity uh, and the fact that we're all now running our lives, uh, somewhat maddeningly perhaps, through these slender uh, uh boxes of plastic that we have in our pockets, these smartphones, and, and both these companies capitalized on that. Well, and there, there's the technology part of it that you so well put just now, but there's also 
the social part of it, even our language has changed where we talk about Googling something or Ubering somewhere. Um, and and the, the policy implications are, are huge as well. But let's start with, with the technology um, and, and what had to happen technologically for this sharing economy and these particular success stories to, to come about. What, what programming language, how did well, that have to evolve to where that made it possible? And you mentioned, you know, smartphones. and Right. It's a good question because both of these companies, um, Uber and Airbnb, are allowing us to do something that our parents told us never to do, right? Get into Talk a stranger's car, <laughs> walk into a stranger's home and spend the night in the spare room. And so I think a couple of things had to happen to make people feel comfortable with that. One, you've got, um, I wouldn't think of it in terms of programming languages, but the emergence of these markets. Market, these online marketplaces where we rank, we rank each other, we share reviews of previous experiences. Um, you know, we see photographs of a host or a driver. These little things that allow us to maybe feel comfortable that this person isn't random, but they've got a history of commerce and here's here's their ranking and and what the experience has been. That was key. The other thing is, you know, think about all these things as removing friction from these transactions. Just the idea of being able to pay seamlessly when you get out of a Lyft car or an Uber car, not an exchange of cash or a swipe of a credit card, but something seamless happening in the background. And that's tied up with phones, but also like the security around digital payment schemes and how much that has evolved over the past 10 years. And, you know, and then not just the phone or the fact that like, you know, we're all, all these networks have gotten better, but the fact that every phone now has GPS. So they know where you are. And look, when you're when you're routing a driver over to the side of the road, that's important. Or even, you know, Airbnb and its ability to go and like mine its data to sort of personalize what you might want. If you're if you've got a family, you know, they would know pretty quickly that you need a home that could, you know, that could that could uh, accommodate your kids. Um, you know, maybe you're upscale, they won't show you the discount stuff or you're or you're looking for a deal, so they won't show you the upscale stuff. A lot of those data mining tools that have emerged over the past decade or so come into play with these companies. Socially, what had to happen to make this ripe for people to want to start living and working this way? Well, here's the funny thing, and I this is I had a lot of fun with the book in reporting on this. So back in 2008, nobody was comfortable with this. In fact, a lot of the smartest people in Silicon Valley, the venture capitalists, uh, pass on these companies. It, um, they, they saw these deals, and they saw these companies, and they said, perhaps showing their age, why would anybody want to do that? Like, I'm not going to sleep on somebody's couch, exactly. and I don't want somebody yeah. sleeping on my couch. And so some of the greatest minds of, our, of of this area passed on the deals. And and so and that's eight years ago. And so what has changed? I mean, I think that these services were embraced by, you know, first by millennials and by other technologists that who were easy or early and easy to embrace this kind of lifestyle. Um, People maybe in search of more authentic experiences when they travel, you know, fatigue with not just the cookie cutter hotel experience, but some of the ways in which big companies can take advantage of you. And then, and you know, I'm sorry, I'm shifting back from home sharing to ride sharing, but uh, you know, in some cities, including here in San Francisco, the taxi industry was not serving people particularly well. You probably re you know remember that. And and in every city, they didn't service outside you know minority neighborhoods particularly well or outer neighborhoods. And so I think that 
you know, another aspect is that the incumbent industries, hotels and taxis, were kind of ripe for disruption. You know, they had maybe taken things for granted for a long time. And, you know, when the upstarts came around, they were susceptible. In your book, you focus on Uber and Airbnb as the, the, the two giants and, and the individual, the personalities behind it who've, who've come out of this uh, on top. What made them the success stories? How did they navigate the policy issues in in all of these cities, rules, regulations, taxes, uh, and as you said, entrenched um, business interests of hotels, taxis, airport services. This could have been, and in some cities is still being argued, a logistical nightmare that could have killed off other companies getting off the and ground it did. like this. And it did. And it did. It did. There, so, were, there were predecessors in, in ride-sharing and home-sharing that did not succeed because they ran into you know, re- regulatory uh, uh, obstacles and, and, and gave up. Um, so I, I think a couple things had to happen. One, you know, and it's the character of these entrepreneurs that they are sort of hard-driving, ferocious. I think we can safely say that in the case of Uber, uh, you know, and Travis Kalanick, the CEO, uh, you know, they kind of bowled over the obstacles that were in his way. He, you know, he he did not ask for permission in 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 major cities. He sort of begged for forgiveness somewhat afterward. Uh, it helped that customers embraced his product. And when he would have trouble in cities like Washington, D.C. or New York, you know, they would email their customers and say, you know, if you want Uber to stay in your city and if you want it to be legal, then send the city council people an email. And it turned out, uh, at least early on, that people loved this service so much they would come out in support of it. Uh, Airbnb was very similar. You know, it was illegal in some places um, just because of older laws around illegal hoteling and and zoning ordinances. And, you know, they kind of launched quietly. They did not, let's just say, go out of their way to warn their customers that these things might be illegal. But they grew. They amassed political power. They hired some very uh, clever and experienced lobbyists. And then they went and tried to change the law from the inside. If you're just joining us, my guest on KCBS In-Depth is Bloomberg Technology Editor Brad Stone, and he is the author of the new book, The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley are Changing the World. I'm Jane McMillan. So for those who didn't make it, what did they do wrong? Or, or going back to your previous answer, was it just the tenacity of these individuals that we're going to talk about next, their personalities? Yeah, no, I think I think there were a couple of things they did wrong. One, in some cases, they were a little too early. So you could not launch a ride-sharing service successfully on the BlackBerry. Right. Um, it, was, it, it didn't have everything you need, the connectivity, the GPS. Um, but I think... That's it's that's letting them off the hook to say they were too early. Um, these successful businesses need a combination of idealism and ruthlessness, and in some cases they would have too much of one and not the other. So, for example, there was a, a service called Taxi Magic, and they were a couple of years before Uber, but they tried to use the yellow cabs. They wanted to play by the rules, mm-hmm. give give apps and phones to yellow cab drivers. Well, you know the problem was yellow cabs. You know they might go to pick up a passenger, but if they see someone hailing them on the side of the road with a suitcase, that's a that's a, a lucrative fare. They'll just pull over and pick up that guy. And then you can't grow the supply on a Friday night. You know, like Uber adds cars and raises prices, lures out drivers. You know, the taxi drivers were, you know, you can't just add cars. And they were straightjacketed by regulation and the fares are set. So they tried to play by the rules. There's a there's a pre-Airbnb company called Couchsurfing. It's still around, mm-hmm. but, you know, they, they initially registered themselves as a nonprofit. So too much idealism 
some not enough ruthlessness. I you know, gotcha. they were they were weighed to one side. And these companies that did emerge, and I would put Lyft in that category as, as having succeeded, uh, they had a nice little balance of having ideals, uh, but also being pretty competitive and ferocious in their outlook. And you mentioned Lyft, and I, I was curious if we look at Lyft compared to Uber and maybe vacation rental by owner VRBO compared to Airbnb. Both, you know, Lyft and VRBO still around, not dominating, at least locally, as much as Uber and Airbnb. What do you see as the differences in these companies in their own categories? Yeah, VRBO is a much older business, and it started as, I think, a classified advertising business based on paper. It was the first to identify this kind of like allow people to rent their vacation homes. It was bought by a company called HomeAway and is now part of Expedia, um, you know, I think that the, they had their focus on, on vacation destinations, and Airbnb's magic was uh, tapping urban areas mm-hmm. and young people and, and you know, a lot more property, more density there. And so Airbnb was able to grow much quicker and get much larger than VRBO. And although, you know, I think the fact that it's now in the Expedia family shows, like, the whole travel industry is waking up to this idea of, of home sharing. So, I, you know, I think I wouldn't dismiss VRBO, but I don't think they quite figured out, even when they became a digital business, you know, the things that Airbnb has done to take friction out of the process, make it easy for people to do this stuff. Um, So we'll talk about Lyft for a second. Lyft, much newer business, actually kind of pioneered the idea of ride sharing. So Uber was using chauffeur drivers. Lyft came around and said, maybe anybody could drive use their own car and just pick people up. You know, I recount all this in my in my book. Mm-hmm. Uber tried to shut that idea down. They thought it was illegal. And when the state of California didn't didn't do anything about Lyft, Uber launched UberX. And that is really what has propelled the whole industry forward. So they, they co-opted that. So how has, maybe we should go to the individuals at the top. And I keep hearing that, you know, that line from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Who are these guys? <laughs> Who are these guys? How did... Uber become such a monster. And of course, the CEO has been in the news a lot lately. He, he We've has got quite this, a bit. you know, he was, he agreed to be on the uh, Trump advisory panel, outrage from a lot of customers, the delete Uber app, you know, push was on. He late stepped down away. Mm-hmm. And then just, you know, this past week, having that tirade with a, a driver caught on on video so who are these people right and how did they know each other and where did they get there did they have seed money to start with yeah do you have to be well connected or can there still be a rags to riches story in silicon valley right well the idea for uber was really uh came from travis kalanick's uh, friend garrett camp who was inspired by a scene in the movie casino royale and had his own transportation problems in the in the city of san francisco there's a scene in that movie that shows a car on a map on james bond's uh sony erickson yeah. phone and, you know, Garrett saw with the iPhone that that would eventually be possible. You know, Travis thought it was a, it was a nice idea, not necessarily a, a good one or a big one. And it was only until, you know, Uber launched and started having regulatory problems in San Francisco that he thought, oh, this is a fight. And he was drawn to it. And that tells you a lot about him, right? He, he's a combative guy. He's an argumentative guy. He's extremely smart. And he took Uber to great heights as CEO. I would probably, you know, I think it's easy to say now, in retrospect, that the things that made him so successful, um, being so logical, arguing so fervently when things were unpopular, for example, surge pricing. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people like the idea of paying more just because it's raining. But it turned out that it does solve one of the 
big supply and demand problems of taxis. So he stood by his guns. He's stubborn. You know, he's combative. And now we see Uber has 11,000 employees. It is no longer a sympathetic underdog, but really, it's, it's really not an upstart anymore. It's stat, a status quo company. And that demeanor, as we've seen, you know, doesn't it, it can it can boomerang on you. And so in terms of the fight with the driver that was captured on video that my publication, Bloomberg, uh, published, you know, I think we're seeing one of the weaknesses and one of the ways that he has to mature. You know, you, you can't just argue with everyone. You've got to be a politician. And on, on the point about the Trump Business Council, you know, he is a Bay Area business uh, leader. And look, I mean, the, the the president's executive order on immigration was very unpopular in Uber's hometown. And perhaps he was late to recognize that one of his key constituencies, employees and drivers, many of them immigrants, would really not look at that the position very positively. So being an upstart, uh, once you make it, and this could be true, and you know, we, you can see it in, in mythology or novels or movies or real life in, in, in every uh, generation, an upstart makes it, but then you've got to act like a state's person that befits the power that you have economically, socially. Andy Grove, my sure. BM, you know, One John Chambers, the, Cisco. The, I mean, yeah, these, yeah. these new, these people knew how to be powerful people. Um, is this a generation, the millennial generation that doesn't know yet how to do that? Or? Well, actually, I mean, Travis is 40. So it's, okay, it's hard. So he's on the edge. It's he's hard on the to outer blame, edge. you know, yeah. immaturity. I think, you know, it's just his, 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 his character. And, you know, after the video came out, he said that he was going to seek leadership help, uh, which perhaps sounds a little bit like damage control. But, you know, I think he's got to put some people around him that can help him, you know, evolve into the leader of what one day might be a public company. And it just all of these little dramas around Uber show that it's not there yet. But, you know, be, the contrast is in my book, so I'll, I'll make it now. You know, Airbnb is another company very much in the public eye mm -hmm. that also had a sort of set of potential tensions around around the immigration order and and the election of Donald Trump. And, you know, Brian Chesky of Airbnb has handled it beautifully, you know, and it's, that's not a company without its controversies, but just a little more astute, a little bit more of a diplomat when it comes to navigating some of these issues. So it is possible to do. If you're just joining us, we're talking about, well, the people Brad Stone has called disruptors or upstarts. Bloomberg Technology Editor Brad Stone is my guest, and he's the author of the new book, The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley Are Changing the World. I'm Jane McMillan. What about when these new economically powerful, business powerful people start working in the political arena or start trying to influence the political arena? I guess I'm asking you if you see this is a, a good thing or a dangerous thing. I think it's inevitable. I mean, these companies now are are as impactful as any politician in Washington. I mean, there was a time last year when the top five companies in the world by market cap were the big five tech companies, uh, Alphabet, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, right? There is no more, there are no more powerful entities in the world. So I don't think, you know, they go seeking to be policymakers. In fact, Silicon Valley quite reluctantly has been forced to embrace that role. Um, you know, uh, they now have a responsibility uh, for, for a public good. And I think, you know, with the upstarts, uh, Uber and Airbnb, you know, they encountered political resistance right after they, uh, 
right after they launched. And so it's why these, I think these guys were forced to become politicians uh, or diplomats much or, much earlier on. And, and for that reason, they, you know, I think they're a different breed of CEO, like, you know, Larry Page or Mark Zuckerberg, you know, they were never, they never wanted to be in a, in a meeting with a city council person or a lobbyist. They did that reluctantly. I think it's fair to say, uh, but Brian Chesky of Airbnb, Travis Kalanick of Uber, you know, have had to get savvier uh, and they can't avoid it because, you know, once you take the digital world into the physical realm and you're talking about moving people around or putting people in homes, you know, you're getting into transportation law and zoning ordinances. People's lives are at stake. I mean, literally, it's it's tragic to say, but, you know, there have been people who have died in Ubers and died in Airbnbs because of things like carbon monoxide poisoning. And so these are heavily regulated businesses and they and the CEOs have to be public figures. Why do you think it is that Silicon Valley, at least the the newer uh, generation of Silicon Valley leaders, and, and not every older Silicon Valley leader embraced the role? I mean, Larry Ellison is not exactly involved in social movements. But why do you think when it is so imperative, technology is, and it, it could work to the advantage of these newer companies, that they that they haven't embraced the policy leadership role that they could on behalf of themselves and their customers and their employees. What is it yeah, about that? It's an interesting that? question. I think, you know, it's it's a sort of inward focus. They've been, you know, you succeed in a lot of digital businesses with just being by being completely absorbed in the mechanics of your own business. And so I think, you know, for 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 many of these companies uh, just like focus on their own business on on their business models, it's hard to kind of open up and then start paying attention to uh, you know to policymakers. Also, look, I mean, you know, the the mindset of the engineer, uh, you know, they probably don't particularly find uh, a lot of you know a lot of value in uh, you know in the input or the mindset of of a of a politician, particularly one who lives on the other side of the country, um, or or one of an, the opposite political persuasion. So I think there has there has had to be a kind of growth trajectory for some of these leaders to come and embrace their role. And look, I mean, you know, maybe it's not uh, a Larry Page sitting in, in meetings with uh, folks in Washington, although he did go to the meeting with the new president early on. But like, you know, they have beefed up. All these companies have beefed up their presences in, in the state capitals and in Washington. You know, you see Eric Schmidt, the Google executive chairman, in all of those meetings. He's kind of the emissary. So, I don't know, you know, I think early on maybe that they were hiding a little bit, but there's no hiding now, right? These are companies who have to be involved and who people expect to be involved. And frankly, because they are so big right now, I think they've got a challenge in, the, in, the, in, in them not getting blamed for things like the dislocation of jobs from automation. Well, and, the, and it, as we're getting down, unfortunately, to the last few minutes, I, I wanted to talk about whether, as you have covered and watched and, and know the historical trajectory of the technology boom and its impact on the region as well as society at large, whether this new sharing economy, the pitfalls, the pluses and minuses to the jobs that these people have, uh, on which is always the flip side of the service it provides, whether this is a good thing overall for the industry and for society. Look, there are drawbacks. Uh, the fact that it is not probably now harder to earn a, uh, a, a good living as a full-time taxi driver, that, or, or if you've owned a medallion, the value of that medallion has been undermined by things like Uber and Lyft. I mean, there are losers in, the, in this economy. But, it, you know, I, you could also look at the positive, 
at the at the positive impacts. I mean, you know, Uber and Lyft serving you know neighborhoods poorly served by the conventional taxi industry. A new kind of flexible short-term work that will that can fill the hours of the day of somebody who has another job or is in school or can be an intermediate intermediary employment for somebody who's out of work. Um, I feel like it's created a lot of economic opportunity uh, for both drivers and riders. I'm not saying there are drawbacks. You know, the fact that this is not fully employed work with a, a litany of health and pension and, you know, other job security benefits is a, is a problem. And I think as a society, we need to address that, not just in ride sharing, but, you know, there's lots of businesses that are paring back on full-time work. Uh, and then I'll just say something quickly about, uh, you know, home sharing. It's, you know, again, it's, it's allowed people to make, you know, incremental income, uh, you know, uh, retirees or, or, or homeowners with an extra room, it, that's the good Airbnb. We need to address the extremes, the people that maybe are amassing homes in cities and just making them available for rent on Airbnb, and then you're reducing the housing supply, you're probably raising housing rate, uh, housing prices and rental rates. You know, there's pluses and minuses. I tend to see, I tend to see both these companies as expanding opportunity on balance. Is there an area of the country where you see um, that with either of these two business models, products or services, I should say, that have figured out how to strike that balance in terms of policy or... We're we're seeing it right now in a lot of in a lot of big cities pushing back, uh, particularly uh, against Airbnb and the overuse of Airbnb. I would say New York City has kind of led the way in having to strike a balance because you've got a, the the densest city in, in the United States, a lot of people sharing resources, clogged streets, high home prices. You know they have they have uh, pretty strictly curtailed uh, the number of nights that you can list an Airbnb, and then of course uh, uh, for for Uber and Lyft, you do need a taxi license there, a chauffeur's license to drive an Uber or a Lyft, whereas you don't in other parts of the country. So, I'm not saying that's a model. New York is just unique. You know, it's a city of what. 15 million people, and they've got their own challenges. Um, but I think, you know, people could look at a New York or a San Francisco, um, you know, which I think have been two leaders in, you know, at, at least, uh, you know, dealing with some of the issues that these companies raise. Do you like to do future futurist uh, thought and projection? I mean, if we've talked about the, the waves of technology that have changed the region... What's and we next? built up what's next. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I mean, I you like... probably can't predict socially, but technologically, as these things all build upon each other, what's next? I'll take a crack with the caveat that I have no idea because none, <laughs> I, eight years ago, I wouldn't have thought these companies would have taken off. And predict, predicting the future, particularly these days, seems to be a fool's errand. But, you know, when I look at when I look at what companies are working on. I, I'm excited by driverless cars. I'm excited by, this will sound really crazy, but uh, um, pr- sort of flying cars, clo- oh, well, colloquially. Listen, all, like, I've been waiting for that Jetsons car for gonna decades. That's going to be exciting. There's some companies working on that. Um, virtual reality is perhaps not quite ready for prime time, but I'm like secure in the knowledge that one day in the old folks' home, uh, you know, when I can't travel, <laughs> I could throw on a pair of, uh, of glasses and go visit anywhere in the world uh, virtually. Talk, talk about the existential discussions we could have about whether that's good or bad for society, right? 
but but maybe for you know for elderly folks who are otherwise yeah. confined, right. great option. And and then the one other thing I'll say is, um, you know, I have an Amazon Echo, this device that you talk mm. to in your home, and my kids love it. And it listens, and it too. listens and responds. And this idea that we can now talk to our computers, another little tenant from science fiction that now does seem real. And so I think at some point we might be talking to computers in the office, or or you know who knows in the checkout lane of of, uh, of supermarkets at home. Um, you know, and 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 it's, it'll be an easier way of interacting with with technology. Now there will be an equal and opposite, perhaps dislocation of of workers that we will have to deal with. But I think that's going to be one of the waves that the next set of companies will will ride. Brad Stone, thanks. We'll we'll have you back and we'll we'll check on the progress of especially the flying car. I'm really waiting for. I'll that. take my flying car back here to the studio, Jane. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. If you would like to see more of Brad Stone's work, you're going to want to check out, of course, Bloomberg. He is the technology editor there. And his latest book, not his only one, but his latest is The Upstarts, How Uber, Airbnb, and the Killer Companies of the New Silicon Valley are Changing the World. Thanks for being with us on In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. In-Depth is produced by Cheryl Raines for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 